This podcast is being recorded on the lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation and the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. We pay our respects to the elders past and present and acknowledge the ongoing connection to land, waters, and culture. Colonization and genocide are ongoing processes that are still happening today. Sovereignty was never ceded, and this always was and always will be Aboriginal land. Hello and welcome back to Ospol Snack Pod, the podcast where two of Australia's foremost political nobodies bring you bite-sized chunks of Australian news and politics with a side of crispy memes. We are also the official podcast of the Ospol Shitposting Facebook group. Head over there if you like Ospol and shitposting. My name is Zach Snack, and with me as always is friend, confidant, and member of my inner sanctum. Hey everyone, it's Noon. Uh, welcome back to Ospol Snack Pod, the podcast that literally just wants to grill for God's sake. <laughs> yeah, just uh, just a couple of dudes grilling, uh, but it's not a barbecue with um, with just two dudes. You need minimum three dudes for a good BBQ, I think. So maybe we should introduce our our grilling partner here. Hi, uh, I'm Cam Wilson. I am a professional poster. I also write for Crikey, the Australian publication, and I love the pod. I love the Facebook group, and I uh, I, wanted, I invited myself grilling. You know, I, I saw that you guys are doing. I sniffed it. I, I smelt the meat, and I was like, I've got to get in on that. And here I am. And we're so glad to have you here at the Snack Pod BBQ. Yeah, thank you so much for coming on the show. It's very exciting for us to have a real, actual, real life, actual, literal journalist. But, but um, also, feels I, good. like you're definitely the right fit for the show because you're like a bit of a meme journalist. I remember a couple of weeks ago you broke a story about um, South Australian police uh, arresting neo-Nazis and then a couple of days later broke a story about um, uh, some liberal frontbencher. Oh, it was Barnaby Joyce had, had like butt-dialed a status. And so there you've got like <laughs> the journalism and the memes, perfect combination. I'm not sure which one I'm prouder of, uh, but you know, all all, <laughs> yep. all things are important to me on the internet. And uh, yeah, no, mm-hmm. I, I, yes, I don't know. Sometimes I'm like, am I? Should I be more serious? Uh, should I, you know, keep that like stiff upper lip that some journalists have? But no, I'm like, you know, I'm I'm all about it. You know, posting uh, journalism, it's it's really the same thing, according to me at mm-hmm. least. Nice. <laughs> yeah, I mean, look, we are big proponents of tonal whiplash here at Ospol Snackpot, so seems like you fit right in. Uh, before we get into our first story, we do want to send a shout out to some new patrons that we got over on Patreon this week. Thank you very much to Ella, Victoria, and Ollie. Uh, and if you like what we do, you can go over to, uh, Os- uh, what is it, patreon.com slash Snackpod. Support us for a dollar a month, gets you bonus episodes, plus other cool stuff. Uh, but uh, in the meantime, Noon, uh, you've got a little entree. Yeah, so uh, there was an election in Tasmania last week, uh, which is some real Australian politics and news. It is, and we kind of forgot that that was happening last week, <laughs> yeah, so yeah. sorry uh, to our Tasmanian No, no, listeners. we just decided to wait until the results are oh, in to yes, report. That's no, what totally. it was. Yeah, That's yeah. the problem, yeah. Yeah, so um, as of the time of writing these notes, the Liberals were on 12 seats, which is one short of a majority. Uh, Peter Goodwin, who's the Premier and the head of the Liberal Party, uh, got a really, really strong personal result. And um, Tasmania has sort of a weird system for elections. They have large seats, which are called divisions, which each has five candidates elected to them. Mm. And so that means that their parliament is a bit more like the federal Senate or other state upper houses. It's more proportional. They use the 
other voting system, whatever. But Peter Goodwin got 50% of the votes in the division of Bass. So that means he won nearly three whole seats worth of votes. Man, for a guy that I've never heard of before, he's really popular. <laughs> yeah, the general consensus is because Tasmania did well in the pandemic, which is because they're a very small <laughs> island beneath another within, island. Within an island, yeah. <laughs> but th- thanks, Peter. Thanks, though, yeah. Uh, the, the Liberal Party hasn't done well. They actually had a small swing against them um, across the state. Uh, but uh, Goodwin claimed victory... Uh, but there's still two seats in doubt, and they're both in the division of Clark. And according to the ABC, independents Christy Johnson and Sue Hickey and liberals Simon Barakas and Madeleine Ogilvie, a former Labour MP who turned independent and then joined the Liberals, are vying for the fourth and fifth seats. So that means uh, the, the two independents are actually ahead of the two Liberals at the moment. So if they both get in, the Liberals won't have a majority. Um, and... and uh, Gutwin repeatedly said he wouldn't govern in minority, so that means if the two independents do get up, he's either going to have to resign, which is very unlikely, or explain that what he meant was that he would govern in minority, which, uh, <laughs> so I'm looking forward to, to that happening. I don't know much about him, um, and he's kind of been, uh, you know, well, he's not a huge figure, but one thing I did see recently when he got his vaccine is he has this big panther tattoo on his arm, and I'm like, that's oh. cool. M- maybe he's actually cooler than I uh, realised. Yeah, he's, Goodwin comes with a past, clearly. Yeah, it's he's... always nice when politicians turn out to be humans, even if they're still shit. It's like, good on you, like uh, Jackie. You to, to be clear, I'm not asserting, I'm not reporting that he is a human. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm like, oh, cool, maybe he's like he's the bad boy of uh, Tasmanian politics. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. Well, he's definitely a bad boy. Here's another quote from the ABC. Uh, Former Labour Premier Lyra Giddings directed scathing criticism at Liberal leader Peter Goodwin for calling the election while Labour leader Rebecca White was heavily pregnant. Mm. I won't ever forgive Peter Goodwin for what he did to Rebecca White as a pregnant woman and the stress that he's put on her baby during an election campaign that was not required, she said. It should not have been held until March of next year, and he'll have to carry that, I believe, forevermore. Well, it looks like he may have shot himself in the foot as well, at the same time as being a massive dick. Yeah. <laughs> Which is really, it's the Liberal um, one too. Um, there is another bad boy in Tasmanian politics. Cam, did you want to tell us about Adam Brooks? Yeah, this guy... Okay, so first of all, we should say that these are all allegations that Adam Brooks, yes. who I think is the former uh, mining minister, denies vehemently. But it came out the a couple of days before the election that one person, or one woman, alleged that Adam Brooks had been dating her for several months under a slightly different name, Terry Brooks. Um, I'm pretty sure she was Victorian, and um, oh, you've got like you've got to read it. it. The details are unbelievable, but like he apparently was like vi- like he was all the time being like, "Oh, my name is definitely Terry." Like he was saying, it, and she's like, "Yeah, I, I believe you." And it was actually kind of like this insistence that made her a bit suspicious about it. That's he then, hilarious. Yeah, <laughs> he then pulled out this fake Victorian license. She alleges that says hey, it's me, like, Terry Brooks. And so she's like, oh, okay. But then I think, like, he was undone by the fact that he, like, checked into a hotel with her where his name was Adam Brooks, uh, which is often a tip-off that it, 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 that is your name. Um, and then well, a... I think he also showed the fake license to cops, didn't he? Like, to the oh, Tasmanian police. Did he? I, I didn't see I... that. But I saw right. a second person has also alleged him of doing the same things. And they've got like photos of them together and photos of the, of the um, dating profile. And 
he is just denying it. And in fact, uh, the, you know, the premier is just like, oh, standing by him as well. Um, and I guess it's kind of, you know, probably in the background is the fact that, you know, if he steps down, then that puts any chance at a majority even further in doubt. Mm. Boy, that is, Not a- if that's true, that is extraordinarily sleazy and fucked up. Yeah. I I, th- I think the premier was like, I think he said something on the lines of like, well, I can understand why you'd use a good looking guy like this as your fake profile picture. <laughs> and I, look, I'm not going to, I'm not going to be rude. I'm just going to say that Adam Brooks looks like how you would imagine your standard state politician. <laughs> Agreed. That That is a harsh burn. <laughs> uh, all right. Thanks for that update on the Tasmania elections, uh, you two. And uh, now it's time for... Fashy Australia. Man, it's satisfying. Uh, listeners, you pr- you probably can't tell the difference, but I just got a soundboard. I've been meaning to do it for like since we started the podcast. So now I can actually play the stings in real time. It it just feels really good. Um, just wanted to share that feeling with you. All right. So uh, Fashy Australia, where we talk about catch up on uh, what's the fashy news uh, in the country this week. And this week, it's uh, more India travel ban stuff. So... We uh, talked about it last week. The government announced that it was banning people returning to Australia from India, Australian citizens, uh, for at least a fortnight from when they announced it. And yeah, we talked about last week how this uh, obviously racist decision is pretty obviously racist, uh, that the government didn't ban flights from either the UK or the US when they were at their peak of infections, uh, despite a higher proportion of total infections coming from those places when they're at their peak and their outbreaks being worse per capita than India's COVID outbreak. Um, but so let's just check back in quickly on this decision. Let's see uh, what's Scott Morrison saying about it this week. Well, the sanctions are there. They exist, but they'll be exercised proportionately and responsibly. Um, those sanctions have been in place now for 14 months, and we haven't seen the extremes of those sanctions um, being required. And uh, I think it would be remote, uh, a very remote circumstance that would see them imposed in these circumstances. But they're imposed seriously because we need to prevent people coming who have been in India during the last 14 days because the risk of infection that they're bringing is very high. Uh, Yeah, so you might notice some strange Mm. sounds in the background of that clip. Uh, That's beef week. (laughs) The sounds of Beef Week. Scott Morrison made, made <laughs> these comments like the worst ambient week. album ever. Um, it, it's like deeply kind of, uh, yeah, troubling noises. Also to like give an announcement mm. about like foreign policy decisions affecting India at Beef Week is pretty fucking toe deaf. Um, but uh, so, you know, what he's saying there is like, yeah, we said we'd throw people in jail for this, but we probably won't actually do it, which is like obviously very reassuring <laughs> stuff um, from the leader of an, an actual nation. Um, but so there has been widespread backlash to this, you know, from the places you'd expect from the Indian Australian community and from migrant communities more generally. Uh, The Human Rights Law Centre is considering a legal challenge to the ban. Uh, The Australian Medical Association have put out statements being like, please, please remove these criminal penalties and just fix quarantine, Mm -hmm. please. Um, But also plenty of opposition from places that you wouldn't necessarily expect. Um, 
such as uh, your professional racist Andrew Bolt, uh, Cold Dusted cosplayer Matt Canavan, and uh, also some cricket guy who I don't know anything about, but um, apparently that was a big deal. People <laughs> are very enthusiastic when uh, cricket is way in on stuff. Um, uh, and also there, there's been a clip circulating on some of the news podcasts. I think I heard it on both 7am and The Guardian where, of uh, Morrison getting grilled by Carl Stefanovic on... What's his show? Is it today or the other one? He, he's today. He's today. today. Yeah. yeah, which is nine. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and yeah. like uh, Stefanovic called him heartless. Like that was his opening question. I was like, okay, you know, <laughs> there's definitely some pushback coming uh, from mm. some some unexpected quarters on this. So, yeah, I wanted to ask both of your opinion. Like, you know, I know why I think the ban is bad, uh, but like I'm genuinely a little bit surprised at how kind of swift and thorough the backlash has been so i mean what do you think is motivating this i mean i was i assumed that this was a play at some kind of populist border politics which has generally proven to be pretty successful in australia you know obviously Mm. we detain refugees uh, indefinitely offshore and then during the pandemic um it's been incredibly popular to shut uh the country's borders but also to shut state borders and to essentially trap people some of the time. Um, and, and this, to me, seemed like the government was just trying to take that a step further. But unfortunately, they didn't count on the, the social capital of both white cricketers and also, um, you know, mostly probably brown Australians who were just elsewhere. Um, and so, like, you know, obviously they, they went from announcing this. So I think it, the media release dropped or or was made, um, lift, the embargo lifted on the media release at midnight on, uh, on, on Saturday, Saturday mm. morning. And then I think it was only, like, you know, three or four days until the government was backpedaling and saying, oh, look, like, we probably won't enforcement. Which, by the way, I mean, I saw the people mentioned that, you know, it's not really up to the prime minister about what mm. laws to enforce. So that that's kind of it, <laughs> something in itself. But then, uh, you know, like a day or two later, you, Scott Morrison was on uh, commercial radio and he was saying, oh, you know, the media has blown it out of proportion, which is ridiculous because they put out a media release about mm. it, um, specifically like the part about making it a crime to mm. for citizens to come back. You know, that was like the fourth paragraph in and... And he was trying to do this kind of jujitsu into being like, actually, the media was making a big deal out of it. I mean, hey, Skomo, buddy, you're making a big deal out of it, and um, mm. and 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 I think like you know we've we've kind of seen the the limit of, or, or at least one of of the the limits of, of where these border politics go. It's like that you know that drill tweet, which is like you know looking at the audience and, and turning the racism dial up to eleven to see how people are responding. <laughs> it seems yeah. as if we've just they kind of like hit that limit. Um, with the proviso that obviously it had to take these extremely famous popular white cricketers also to be pushing back against this as well. Mm. Yeah, mm. I, th- I think it's sort of... It is interesting way that the backlash has been different here than it is against... Uh, when we had harsh borders against China, for example, and I think there's probably a few reasons for that. I think one is that, um, uh, like, the huge number of deaths in India has, like, spiked empathy around the entire world, um, and so there's this general kind of feeling of, like, there's a bad situation in India that, mm. like, everyone should try and pitch in to help with in some way. Mm. And, like, 
whether or not the backlash is concerned about citizens, like Australian citizens who are in India, that, that like that the concern for the millions of people on the continent get extended to those seventeen thousand people, citizens of Australia, or if if it's just like they're just people who are there that we feel sorry for. But I also think that like Australia has a relationship with India that's very different than our relationship with say China, um, which like the history of British colonialism and like uh, the the cricket enthusiasm I think there's sort of a camaraderie with India that doesn't exist with China specifically in Australia yeah totally Uh, like so much of Australian politics conservative politics at the moment is about China and even Mm. though obviously that's not um that's not about Chinese Australians or Australians with Chinese Mm -hmm. heritage um, like obviously that kind of dog whistling does blur the lines. That that doesn't happen to the same extent with India. Yeah, I think those are all good points. And I also wonder if there's something in the mind of these kind of conservative commentators about like the sanctity of Australian citizenship. It's mm. like, you know, very specifically the focus has been around the idea that we're stopping Australian citizens coming home. Um, and, you know, Australians are stuck there. So I don't know. I mean... Maybe that's kind of uh, playing into it as well. But yeah, it's you know good to see such kind of uh, widespread outrage about this because it is fucking outrageous. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, yeah, I mean, S- Morrison is a political operator who absolutely will not like soft pedal or like walk back anything unless he absolutely has to, according mm. to the political arithmetic. And clearly he's, he's seen this and being like, Oh, and he hasn't done like a full walk back or whatever, Mm. but you know, for him to even slightly admit like, Oh, we're not really going to do this. It's like, yeah, I'd say that that's, um, it's clearly, uh, having a big effect, uh, on the government at the moment. Yeah, totally. And I might just jump in there and say that, you know, my take on Scott Morrison generally has been that he's not a man without ideology. Like Mm. you probably remember all the hot takes as soon as the pandemic started and they, they implemented the um, like job keeper, you know, which was quite a a, a widespread and, and big um, welfare program. Mm, um, totally. And, and you know, there was your your standard uh, people in the press gallery being like, "Oh, look at Scott Morrison. He's you know shown that you can govern from the centre." Mm. It's not entirely true. You know, he still, as you can see from the coronavirus recovery and where money was focused, is is highly ideological. It's just not along the lines of, of traditional conservative politics anymore, which is kind of going out the window almost everywhere. You know, he doesn't mind being a populist. He isn't too worried about, like, deficits and stuff mm. insofar that it matters to him, uh, more so that he worries about it as kind of an ideology to make sure that he seems like he is financially responsible. And so, mm. you know, with this stuff, like, for me, like, I often see, you know, when, when he kind of walks something back, like, I think the only reason why he doesn't, uh, you know, doesn't make a, too much of a big show and, and deal out of it is because he doesn't like being seen to walk something back is a kind of you know it's embarrassing it's it's a show of political weakness but at the same time you know i don't think that he has these strong convictions about these things insofar as they're anything more than a political you know tactic and so you know hey he, he rolled this out i imagine you know this is part of the um the government's i think reset from the the really bad few months that they had dealing with the uh, I don't even know, it, you know, the, the Brittany Higgins, all that kind of stuff that was, mm. you know, really, really weighing down the government. And so they had the, you know, kind of pivot to, you know, he was doing all these um, 
religious uh, events. And I think that's mm. to kind of, you know, um, to play up his, his, his um, position as a, of a man of faith and now to kind of go hard on border politics. Um, and, and when it turned out to be unpopular, he was like, well, cool, no big deal. I actually, you know, this is only important to me insofar as it is something that is supposed to make me popular. Um, mm-hmm. Like, you know, like, I mean, I dare say that he's like, we're, we're kind of dealing with all this stuff fine anyway without the criminalization. Um, and so that's why I don't think he really minded walking it back. Yeah. It's interesting you point out that he he's really like yeah casting out in various directions being like what's the best way to kind of change the conversation here get back on the front foot in terms of uh <laughs> the news cycle and yeah oh no that one's a bit, bit too hot we'll uh you know we'll try something else uh i'm sure there'll be something new next week uh all right uh maybe it's time now to move on Positivity corner. yeah so as with most of our positivity corners it's not that Positive, but it's not not positive. Uh, the, the Australian government has supported a waiver of intellectual property rights for COVID vaccines. Um, so a lot of other countries, including the US, support this waiver, which would essentially make it legal for anyone to manufacture generic versions of patented vaccines, so like AstraZeneca or Pfizer or whatever, as well as other COVID-related medical supplies like respirators. And so the particular waiver that's been proposed, it's a type of agreement made by the WTO, the World Trade Organization, uh, to basically, like, pretend that intellectual property laws don't apply in international trade about this thing for a a couple of years, I think is the the idea, for like two years or something. Um, But the waiver would need to be approved by all 164 World Trade Organization members, any one of which could veto it. Um, And so Germany has said that they're not going to uh, support it, but Joe Biden is getting mad about that. And the European Union has said that they will consider it and France is supporting it. So we'll see if Germany changed their tune. Is that because they have like a huge pharmaceutical industry? Pfizer is German and there's a bunch of other German pharmaceutical copyright holders who are making bank from these patents. Um, Yeah, I mean, on the one hand, you know, You've got the the lives of potentially millions of people, but on the, on the other hand, you've got money. You've got so, dollars of potentially millions. Yeah, I can see the bind they're in. Yeah, yeah think yeah. about all the farmer execs. You know, they're people too. Mm-hmm. Haven't they <laughs> suffered enough during this pandemic? Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Uh, unfortunately, everything that I've read said that the waiver like might get up, might get through in a couple of months at the very, very best, and that November there's some World Trade Organization meeting in November, and that's like a much more likely timeline uh right. for it to get through assuming that everyone is like willing to do it in principle and uh, wto has a very slow dull process for negotiating things so yeah a, a lot of people aren't very optimistic about the timeline though some of joe biden's like staff have been saying we're gonna make it go faster than that mm-hmm. um so yeah the vaccine manufacturers and on their behalf germany have been saying very loudly that the patents aren't the thing that's slowing down the process uh, which, you know, I'm sure none of these companies have ever called to reduce red tape then, since they don't think that extra steps required to do something might slow <laughs> it down, obviously. So. Um, according to an article in The Economist, quote, The hoarding of doses by rich countries and the hoarding of technology by drug companies sustains the scarcity. Companies spanning the globe from Canada to Bangladesh are ready to produce hundreds of millions of doses if provided with the know-how, but they are unable to start. Were the technology shared... These manufacturers could produce doses quickly, just as Moderna and Pfizer did last year. 
This would get more people vaccinated in more countries and make fewer countries dependent on wealthy ones. Monopoly control over critical public health technology cannot be justified in a global emergency. The need for an intellectual property waiver is clear for vaccines, but it's also important for treatments like drugs, ventilators, masks, and other products. Already, drugs like remdesivir are being used to treat severe cases or in short supply in much of the developing world, with predatory pricing by distributors preventing access. Um, so, yeah, so this waiver could uh, have a much bigger effect than just the vaccines. It could help treat people in hospital more effectively, help reduce symptoms, so on and so forth. And obviously, like masks and hand sanitizer and stuff are like essential and not in as, as much supply as we need around the world. Um, Scott, his image of, um, you know, the Lionel Hutz meme. Can you imagine a world without intellectual property rights? <laughs> Everybody exactly dancing it. around happy and healthy. Yeah, well, <laughs> in the role of Lionel Hutz, we have Dr. Amesh Ad, uh, Adalia, a senior scholar at the John Hopkins Center for Health Security, said a patent waiver, quote, amounts to the expropriation of the property of the pharmaceutical companies whose innovation and financial investments made the development of COVID-19 vaccines possible in the first place. Uh Good. Yeah, I say good to that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and like literally using the word expropriation there as if like, oh no, we'd hate to expropri expropriate <laughs> funds from a big company. A oh, predatory geez. company, yeah. Uh, and I'll just finish off this story with a, a little quote from Reuters. Pfizer said on Tuesday it expects COVID-19 vaccine sales of at least $26 billion this year. Wow. Just scraping by. Just <laughs> barely. <sighs> Tough times for them. Yeah, Pfizer's really struggling. So, uh, thoughts and prayers. We'll, actually, we'll send around a, like a hat, and if you want to, like you know, toss some Chuck cash, a couple in. billion dollars. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, we'll put a link to the Pfizer GoFundMe. Uh, <laughs> That's really the positivity corner: is that the waiver isn't getting up, so the Pfizer executives will be able to put some food on the table. Ah, uh, a classic Ospol Snackpot positivity corner. When we can all <laughs> feel good about. Okay, um, <laughs> should we move on now, Zach? Yeah. Um, going to move on now to our first nation story uh this week and i'll issue a, a content warning here i'm going to use the names of uh, aboriginal people who have died and there's going to be a discussion of of deaths in custody we'll put time codes in the show notes uh if you want to skip over this section uh so just going to bring a, a bit of an update on the coronial inquest into the death in custody of wayne fella morrison so we talked a little bit about this last week uh, he was a Wiradjuri, Kukata, and Warangu man who died in 2016 in South Australia. Uh, he lost consciousness in a prison transport van where he was placed face down with his hands and feet restrained and had his face covered by a spit hood. Um, he, he was, yeah, he, he lost consciousness in the van and he died in, in hospital a couple of days later. Um, so Waynefeller Morrison's family had been waiting for answers about his death for five years and we uh, discussed a bit last week about how there's been really long delays getting the inquest started because uh, of prison staff attempting to do stuff like having the assigned coroner removed and that kind of thing. Um, and uh, the other thing that we mentioned, which is kind of one of the main things that this inquest is hinging on, is this question around whether the seven prison officers who were in the van with Morrison would give evidence. Um, so... It's important to note there's no CCTV from inside the van. There's CCTV of uh, like from, from outside the van that showed the guards putting Fella Morrison in there. Um, and uh, the inquest also heard last week that the van was cleaned after the incident, not preserved as a crime scene. So basically the only 
uh, thing that anybody has to go off what happened in there is evidence from uh, witnesses. Uh, but these seven prison officers who are in the van are claiming this thing called penalty privilege, which is a, a South Australian law, which basically allows people giving evidence at coronal inquests uh, to refuse to answer questions that they think might incriminate them. So there's been quite a lot of back and forth about this uh, penalty privilege stuff and whether or not uh, the seven officers could claim it as a group, which is what they wanted to do, and basically be like, you know, just a blanket lawyer gets up one time and says, none of these people want to answer any questions related to any of X, Y, Z. Uh, but Morrison's family obviously wanted the officers to have to give evidence and uh, specifically to have to answer questions individually as opposed to just, you know, Sure. as a, uh, being able to refuse to answer as a group. And so this week, the coroner ruled in the family's favor, um, cool. saying that the officers would have to answer questions individually. They couldn't refuse to answer whole topics uh, and would instead have to claim this penalty privilege for each individual question. Great. Which, you know, yes. Uh, but then on Friday uh, this week, the first of the seven officers, a guy named Trent Hall, uh, took the stand and this was the first time for Morrison's family seeing the officers in person in court. So, uh, you know, an extremely fallen day for them, um, as you can imagine. And, and I'm getting a lot of my info from this from um, uh, Roxy Moore, who was live tweeting the proceedings with Natalie Einfield. Um, and uh, I'm going to read an exchange here from Roxy Moore's thread. This is the first question that Trent Hall, the first of the seven prison officers, was asked when he got on the stand. Council assisting. Mr. Hall, did you get into the back of the van with Mr. Morrison? Counsel Abbott, my client wishes to claim the penalty privilege and the privilege against self-incrimination. Mr. Hall, I decline to answer the question on the grounds that I genuinely believe that the answer may incriminate me on the grounds of a civil offense or a disciplinary penalty. And so that pattern continues for every single question. Uh, here's another example from Nat Ironfield in the same Twitter thread. Uh, counsel assisting. As part of your role, have you received any training? And did you comply with it? Counsel Abbott rejects on the objects on the same grounds and the coroner upholds this objection. So it's like just constant stonewalling. And it gets to the point where counsel for Hall is claiming the privilege on the yes or no question of whether Hall was actually there on the day. Like That's wild. <laughs> even though there's no the CCTV of it, there's and there was this exchange between the coroner and uh counsel assist uh sorry, counsel Abbott. Is the, the 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 abbreviation is the same, so it gets confusing. But the the guy representing the prison officers was like, "Well, there's no, no. I mean, we're not arguing that he wasn't there, but if he says he was there, he might be incriminating himself." I realize uh, like, the whole point of this law is so that you don't have to say potentially incriminating things. But if someone's like, "Did you do this crime?" and you're like, "I can't answer that because if I did, you would know that I'd done a crime." Like, there's something that's a bit sus. Yeah, there's a lot of that kind of going on. I mean, just on these really basic questions, it's very frustrating as well, obviously, on behalf of the family who it's like, we, mm. the whole reason you're on the stand is because you were there. Like, you can answer this question. Hall was compelled eventually to answer that question, but the officer's lawyers have said that immediately that they were going to challenge her rulings on that. So there's also limits on what can and can't be reported from these hearings because some of this stuff might get, like, struck from the record, as I understand it. Um, so, yeah, look. All of these officers are going to have to come up individually and answer these, uh, you know, be asked these questions, and all of them are going to be claiming privilege pretty much the whole time and deliberately blocking this inquest. Um, 
But I wanted to just go into a little bit of detail about the process here because um, I, I just think it's important to, I guess, uh, understand and look at these ways through which like people in institutions involved in the deaths of indigenous people avoid accountability. It's just like, this is the, at, at the kind of finest and most minute level, like the, a, a key function of systemic racism that they're, you know, like this is the same legal system that imprisoned Wayne Feller Morrison while awaiting trial. Like he was never convicted, convicted. of anything. He was on remand. And meanwhile, and, and he, and that, you know, being sent on remand was a death sentence for him. And meanwhile, these seven officers who, you know, who were there in the van with him can stonewall even the most basic questions about his death, like including whether or not they were there. So his family is again left with no answers. The, uh, the inquest is ongoing, as I mentioned. Um, and just to round out here, I guess, you know, probably important to point out that there has been some movement from the South Australian government in response to all of the incredible activism that Wayne Feller Morrison's family has been doing around this issue. So um, since this case started, obviously it's been ongoing since 2016, but South Australia has actually changed these laws around penalty privilege. So coroners can now compel uh, witnesses to give evidence. Um, and that was in specifically in response to this case. But the laws aren't retroactive. And because the inquest right, right. started before the laws were changed, it doesn't apply, yep. um, which is, yeah, you know, I can imagine would be extremely frustrating for Morrison's family. Um, and the other thing to note about this is that Morrison's family have been campaigning hard to have spit hoods banned mm. in South Australia. And actually this week um, on Thursday, the ABC reported, I'll read a quote here, in a statement, a spokesperson for the Department of Correctional Services said a decision had been recently been made said a decision had recently been made to ban the use of spit hoods in all South Australian prisons. A six-month transition period will occur while consultation is undertaken into alternative protective equipment for staff, the spokesperson said, um, which is, you know, a good start. Um, I've also got a quote here from uh, Wayne Feller Morrison's sibling, Latoya Rule, who's been campaigning really hard on this. They said, six months isn't good enough. The spit hood ban needs to be immediate. Spit hoods must be banned in all of its forms, including any cruel alternatives, and not just in prisons, across all settings, across the whole country. So, yeah, I think the point there that Rule makes about, like, you can't just replace this with some other fucked torture device is an important one because, yep. you know, obviously that's the kind of thing that institutions like that love to do. Like, oh, yeah, we're banning this thing, and, you know, just, we're actually just bringing in something else. Um, and, uh, <laughs> On a final, a final note here, that Morrison's family said they found out about this phase out of spit hoods through the media, not from the Department of Corrections. So I think that tells you a lot about the tone that the state is taking with this family and their attitude towards this whole uh, case, which has been, yeah, it's deeply tragic. It's been uh, an extraordinarily difficult time for Wayne Fell Morrison's family, but um, the activism that they've been doing around this is is incredible and um We'll put a link, I think, to the, there's a petition to ban spit hoods, um, which they're still advocating around. And also uh, there's uh, a GoFundMe for the family as well. So we'll put some links to that in the show notes. Thanks for taking us through that story, Zach. Um, now we're going to do some classic snap, snack pod tonal whiplash and move on to shit post of the week. And Cam, we asked you to bring uh, a shit post of the week, but before we get to that, I just wanted to mention I uh, completely unrelated to having you appear on the show this week, um, found 
uh, a thread that you'd done when you were leaving BuzzFeed about that um, uh, heartbreaking, the worst person <laughs> you know just made a great point. Um, and I couldn't actually find the end to the story. Did you end up tracking that guy down? I did. And this is going to be a big tease because I have, I have, I have an answer in my back pocket. I've actually, a, f- a few months ago, Slate contacted me, like the US publication, like, can you write it? And then right. I've just had like so much personal stuff happen recently. It's, I, I am making a commitment that I'm going to get this. I'm going to give you the answer soon. I will tell you that the answer is both unsatisfying, but also weirdly fitting. Uh, so, oh, that's <laughs> so that a is tease. a big tease. I'm, I'm excited yeah. for the article. So, so it's, uh, sorry to edge you like that, but, uh, <laughs> but um, yeah, yes, I have an answer to it. Um, watch this space. Fabulous. All right. So yeah, what, what was the shit post that you brought for us, Cam? So I don't, I'm not a big sports guy, but I, 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 I saw a post from someone who, although he's known for his sporting prowess, has really transcended that into a new realm of um, of shit posting, and that is Shane Warne. Mm-hmm. Um, so, for those people who aren't aware of cricket stuff, I'm going to go very basic. I barely know anything as as well. So, if I get anything wrong, please don't blame me or please don't tell me. I don't care. Um, but <laughs> Shane Warne, obviously, very very famous bowler. Um, this week was a very big week for cricketers, not just the ones who were contesting the India travel ban, but also for, um, people probably saw that the former test cricketer, Stuart McGill was actually kidnapped. Um, so he's, he's also a very, very well-known, um, Australian, uh, bowler who is now a former cricket player, but you know, very high profile. So he was kidnapped. And as it turns out, he was actually kidnapped by his partner's brother, um, and that's kind of all been sorted now, but obviously, you know, very stressful kind of time. And Stuart McGill and Shane Warne have this relationship where, um, Shane Warne for the majority of his career was kind of, they were kind of rivals, but Shane Warne was always the one who was pretty much better. And so essentially Stuart McGill, the guy who was kidnapped, uh, he was for the most of his, most part of his career, kind of like the understudy for Shane Warne and, you know, always wanted to kind of overtake him. If he was around at another time, you know, if their careers wouldn't have overlapped, he would have been the superstar. But because of Shane Warne, he was kind of always the bridesmaid, never the bride. Anyway, so with that in mind, on, I think it was uh, a, a Tuesday or Wednesday, this news kind of came out of nowhere. Everyone's like, I can't believe that this really famous cricketer was kidnapped. And like later that afternoon, just like <laughs> Shane, I, I don't know if anyone's seen Shane Warne's uh, Instagram, but he put up this photo of him with his like pearly white teeth, this real glamour shots in black and black and white. Um, and, and the caption was, hope everyone had a great laugh today. <laughs> Which in the oh context <laughs> of his like former rival being like, uh, abducted, uh, kidnapped, beaten. abducted, yeah. and like blackmailed, and it was like the biggest news that was kind of going on. Everyone's like, "Oh my god, what's happening?" And he just puts up like, "Hope everyone had a great laugh today." It's unbelievable. There's no way that he didn't know about <laughs> the Stuart McGill kidnapping. Like, at best, the absolute most generous thing you could say about Shane Warne in this situation is that he was being tactless. 
Like that's the absolute, that's the most generous reading possible. Totally. You know, you could, maybe he, you know, maybe someone else is, I mean, I'm sure someone else is running his Instagram account mm. and, you know, maybe it was something that was already scheduled. It's not like a sponsored post, but it's totally like a glamour shot. Um, or maybe he was just like, fuck it. Like, just, just so you know, Let's get some drama. I, I haven't been kidnapped. I'm body thriving here. right now. Non-kidnapped. <laughs> sucks to be you. Look, you know, Shane Warne is notorious for liking thirst traps on Instagram. Yep. I reckon that he is running his account himself. Maybe, look, maybe he's got somebody helping him out. But um, <laughs> this is in no way out of character, in my opinion. And also, like, this, is, this is the kind of, you know, this is the mindset that made him the best. He doesn't have time for losers. <laughs> he doesn't have time for people who are kidnapped. He's, you know, he's the king. That's what made him the king of spin. Um, Shane Warne, I salute you. I mean that's yeah that, that that's a pretty significant post from one of our foremost posters. Um, before we get off shit post, there was one other one that caught my eye this week that I I wanted to shout out, and I guess technically it this one goes to Benita Colavos, who's a reporter who who posted this tweet, and uh, it's a photo of the uh, Victorian opposition leader Michael O'Brien. Who? Uh, yes, thank you. <laughs> um, who? No, no, no. Would, trying to describe him last night and he looks kind of like halfway between greg hunt and christopher pine but like yeah like sort of if you if you sort of face mash them together oh um, i see that. also he looks like um oh, what's the guy from is it um twin peaks yes leland palmer yeah he, he kind of looks like a little bit like him as well yeah i i, I can absolutely see that although he's got you know that's a favorable comparison because Leland Palmer is at least charismatic at points. Anyway, uh, so persona non grata liberal leader Michael O'Brien is a photo of him standing in front of a bank of microphones and the tweet says, quote, you can take my barbecue tongs out of my cold dead hands, opposition leader Michael O'Brien says of the city of Yarra's plans to phase out gas. <laughs> uh, this this, po this comment from him, it was about this like gas like stove related issue um but it came the same week as the new south wales covid carrier went to four different barbecue shops yeah big um, week for cricketers big week for barbecues um, and so there's been a lot of like you never seen that guy and michael o'brien in the same room at the same time or you know <laughs> yeah um but as other people have pointed out uh, you know, if we continue cooking with gas, the only option will be to take them out of your cold, dead hands, Michael <laughs> O'Brien, because we're all going to die as a result of climate change. Uh, well, yeah, so I guess the response really is that uh, that can be arranged. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, okay, well, let's move on now to what's going to be kind of our uh, main chunky conversation for this episode, which is... Uh, I've written in, in my notes here, George Christensen, pro poster. So maybe that's a good intro for you to take this one, Cam. Yeah, sure. Um, so George Christensen, who I'm sure everyone who's listening knows too much about, in fact, um, is a, so he's an LMP uh, a member, MP in Queensland. And he's always kind of been known for being a bit of a maverick. He's He's been in Parliament for about 10 years. Um, and I'm kind of fascinated by him because I, I look at him and I see the symptoms of someone who is very online. 
he he fights um you know he, he clearly is really enmeshed in online like right wing uh you know media and spaces as well and you can kind of see that through the way that he he operates and so f- you know for a while he's, he's he's had a reputation of being a maverick i'm pretty sure he like he crossed he's crossed the floor a couple of times he's pushed for things like the banking royal commission before mm, right. yep. um before mm. um the 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 coalition government did um but like you know i, I kind of set him up against someone like craig kelly so craig kelly is kind of a, he's got a, you know a real terminal case of facebook brain where he he's he's clearly what's happening is he's seeing things on facebook they're going right into that big dome of his and then they come straight back out again like you know he's he's ingesting posts and putting them back out he's a Whereas, true believer you reckon craig kelly he is 100 he, he reads he believes 100 percent, 100 percent. um and whereas george christensen i think is closer to uh i mean like i guess in a way like ted cruz who's probably a political uh parallel but i'd say more like you know these professional um online you know right-wing culture warriors who have really kind of you know emerged in a big way during the trump presidency where you know he is doing everything for engagement uh, at the end of the day the the only thing that actually matters is posting. You know, he comes up with these, um, you know, certain ideas. You know, I, I think he, he clearly has, you know, he's long been known for being very anti-Islam. He's very, like, anti-China. So, uh, you know, he's often had these kind of points. Um, and, and he just kind of, he lives to push these things. And, and, and you know, n- not, I think, really for... Um, for anything but the sake that he wants to win these online wars and he wants to be notorious for doing it. So, you know, I I paid a lot of attention to him because I think that he, in some ways, is kind of like the future of a lot of conservative politics where, you know, as we see, like, you if you've seen those like you know cancel culture very often like cancel culture stuff isn't actually happening so like you know the like you know the dr seuss thing that happened like a couple of weeks ago which was like oh they're trying to cancel dr seuss but what was actually happening was that um you know the seuss family had chosen to stop publishing some old dr seuss books which were really racist but you know the the like uh, so much of the right at the moment is turning things into this idea that you're being oppressed, you're losing power. They often have to kind of have these almost like confected, you know, arguments against things. You know, this is happening to you, which actually isn't happening. You know, George really kind of, um, he he encapsulates that. And so that's why I've kind of been so fascinated by him. You know, when I was at Gizmodo, um, I think I wrote this about six months ago, I came across his uh, Facebook account, which was just like his personal Facebook account. You know, it had his name, it had a Facebook post that said, don't contact me here. Contact me on my official page. And I, I um, because I really don't have anything better to do, I went through, like, all of his, like, 1,300 Facebook likes. Wow. And I found, <laughs> like, just honestly, really sus shit. Like, like <laughs> super, like, conspiracy pages that were mm-hmm. like, oh, Bill mm-hmm. Gates is, uh, you know, trying to do a, you know, one world government. I found all these um, super um, kind of, like, alt-right Christian pages. So, like, mm. things that were, like, mingling both like christianity also with like white supremacy so he, he's really like all in these worlds and, and and since then i um have you know last week oh no i think i can't remember what it was i think it was this week um i i i, I wrote about how you know he's announced that after this um term in parliament 
he is not going to be in Parliament anymore. He's going to leave because he kind of cited, you know, my, my, my family. He has a young family over in the Philippines. But he kind of hinted. He's like, I am going to try and influence things from outside of Parliament. Mm. And, you know, becoming a professional, what I call like political influencer, you know, is something that you see elsewhere, not as much in Australia. I think he's trying to pave the way. And what I found mm. was that he is trying to do so, uh, or one of the ways he's trying to support himself while doing that is by becoming like an Amazon affiliate partner. Like he he now oh, yeah. is like um, sharing, like uh, he, he didn't announce That's it, he just twist. started sharing all these links to Amazon books. And I was like, what's the go with this? Talk and then about. I looked and realized that he was actually taking a cut from all these sales. So Each he was, click, yeah. so he was using his official uh, Facebook page, his isn't newsletter. Isn't that illegal? Isn't that, like, I mean, not, I That's know you're not a lawyer camp, but like, I'm, isn't that like some section 44 shit about like, uh, I'm not, I don't know. So, so I, I was told no initially by some people, but I've since had it raised that it, look, hey, I'm not a, I'm not a lawyer, but yeah. I'm going to give you guys some free legal advice. So let's go for it. <laughs> um, apparently like, um, you know, you, you can't use your, um, you, you can't use stuff that you've essentially charged to, to the Commonwealth to promote your business interests. And what was raised with me is that he, you know, his newsletter was probably paid for, the design of it was probably paid for by the government, um, as MPs are allowed to do. Um, you know, if he used any of his um, devices, like phone or computers that are paid for by the Department of Parliamentary mm-hmm. Services, mm-hmm. even if he's paid for MailChimp, um, because he has been using that to kind of, you know, s- Send kind of, shit out kind of create this audience, mm-hmm. um, that could be. So I put it to his office and <laughs> George's office knows me well because I have been keeping a close <laughs> eye on him and they don't ever respond to me anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I, I'm not really sure. I'm kind of chasing that up now. But even if it isn't illegal, mm. it's, such a, it's super etch. Like, yeah, you know, yeah. MPs, politicians should not be using their, you know, the resources that the taxpayer pays for. Also, the, you know, the audiences that they've grown through, you know, being Mm. a MP to promote their business interests. So, but I mean, he doesn't care. Like he he really, you know, he said, I've got, I'm, you know, whenever the next election is probably now less than a year from now, um, he is, he said, I'm just going to be more outspoken up until then. And like, what's, you know, the government, I'm sure is not going to want to do anything about this because, you know, they have yeah, a one seat majority. majority. Yeah. Um, the, I, I imagine like, I can't see anything kind of happening, but you know, I think it's kind of hard with this stuff, right? Like how much can you be outraged by? And also like, you know, how much does something like this matter compared to many other things that the government does that people find objectionable? But I think the answer is, you know, it's this, it's this slow um, you know, degrading of of our respect for the officers and how they're supposed to be used that kind mm. of contributes to people, you know, not not being excited or not even excited, but, you know, trusting politicians or, or wanting to engage the political process because they think that they see people literally using it to try and make money for themselves. Anyway, so like that was, uh, sorry to kind of talk about George, I could literally talk about him all day, but I think he's fascinating because he is like the new generation. I think we're only going to see more and more who are these real, mm. like, you know, he, he he really cares about these international kind of culture wars. Mm. Um, and even though, you know, he's an MP and he does do many things or he campaigns on many things for his seat, for his, specifically for his electorate the bigger things that he really takes uh, issue with are things that really don't have often anything to do with him, but he does it a, a, of a way of, you know, courting controversy, court of, uh, like, you know, trying to 
get attention so that he can then increase his political profile and his you know his his audience through things like facebook newsletters which then he can then use again to kind of create more controversy i think mm. yeah you, you said something uh up top about you know this is sort of a new phenomenon of the trump era and i'm just thinking about like the way that white supremacy has sort of shifted in australia from the upf doing these sort of like real life kind of rallies irl uh, posting yeah effort posting. Um, and then the shift over to the avi yaminis and the lauren southerns of the world and like i think also it was just QAnon, right that like suddenly there was this like huge market for far-right conspiracy theories that everyone in that world wanted more content for and like but like I guess, like, Corey Bernardi was kind of, like, the last analog one, right? And then in the now, you know, he went over to, to Sky News and stuff, whereas George Christensen is the 2021 version. He's going to YouTube and Amazon affiliate. Totally. He, like, George Christensen is, I mean, he's 42, but he, he totally is a digital native and gets yep. this in a way that I don't think any other Australian politician really gets. And mm, so, mm. you know, we've just got Bill Shorten using the word based every three months <laughs> as the next best <laughs> That's thing. That's his top competition. Yeah. Very epic, sir. Um, yeah. 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 <laughs> he, um, uh, like, he really gets it. And particularly for the last year, you know, I. I don't, I don't like, he says the reason he's resigned is because of his young family and because he's frustrated with the political process. And, you know, I, I have to kind of take him his word. I don't know mm. anything otherwise, but at least for a year, he really has taken this, like this pivot into um, trying to transcend the office of just being the member for Dawson into mm. this bigger, you know, political online figure. And so, you know, he has been building this um, newsletter, which, you know, is a very, uh, e email addresses are a great way to reach people. And they can be, you know, particularly if you're, you're campaigning the right things, they can be very, uh, very useful for getting support for things. He was doing a podcast, which he has since um, abandoned, but like, you know, that was another example. He was doing like live streams on his Facebook with like pre-prepared packages which he would then you know like interplay into it so he's like he really was trying to cultivate this bigger hmm. international or you know national or international audience of people who see him as a influencer and I, and i don't use this you know in the sense of well i mean i kind of do you know the you know, influencer sorry influencer hasn't always meant you know your instagram, instagram. model who's doing that mm -hmm. kind of thing like you know people in the past you know like uh, celebrities who used to do political sorry who used to do endorsements of of products and ads that was an influencer he is trying to do that in politics but also he is using many of the um many of the the, the um tools and mediums that online creators use and i think that's it's very very savvy and so you know like I was looking at it, he was just promoting all these Amazon posts and they were getting, you know, probably more than like a thousand likes each for just like links to books. And, you know, who knows how many people That's buy them? He would take like, I think 4.5% of each sale from that. And look, you know, uh, affiliate marketing is, is you, you got to be pretty big to like mm. um, really Actually support yourself. Yeah. Mm. But like, you know, that plus, you know, if he's able to be a big figure just by commanding attention, but then like, you know, maybe he gets a, a you know, a, a show on sky or maybe he gets picked up by like think tanks. Cause there are a mm, bunch of mm. them around Australia or other, you know, advocacy groups who, who pay him to just kind of do that professionally. And so, you know, there, there's a way that George Christensen could, 
continue to um, achieve his ideological aims while not having to do anything of being uh, any of the work of being a member. And you kind mm-hmm. of see that with like, you know, your, your George, uh, sorry, your um, Ted Cruz's in the U S and your um, Marjorie Taylor Greens, who are both now like, you know, like I remember Ted Cruz put up this, this um, he was having like some back and forth AOC and he put up this like weird image that almost looked like a, a, a wrestling promotion poster of like him and AOC. And I was just like, we've just we're seeing like some of these politicians essentially just become professional content creators mm. who are giving audiences what they want and trying to monetize that and also using that influence to to try and you know um to to achieve their political aims. Anyway, so that, that's why I'm interested in George. I still think, you know, it's it's a tough thing to do in Australia because we just don't have the scale. You know, mm. if, if there's not enough people to really support that in the same way as the US. But, I mean, if, if anyone will do it, at this point, it's George. So I, I'm really fascinated in what he's been doing. Yeah, I think it's, like, as you say, it's indicative of, of potentially the future of what being a politician is going to look like. And, uh, you know, we've done a deep dive before on uh, Craig Kelly on this show. And he's somebody who kind of like, as you describe, like is tapping into in some ways, similar stuff, although his approach is probably um, uh, like, yeah, more earnest maybe than George Christensen. But like <laughs> the fact that he like, you know, Kelly's not going to be around after the next election either, most likely. Um, and I think it's interesting to look at, uh, we were trying to work out. We like talked about him for like a full hour, and then wow. we were like, "Okay, so what does this mean?" You know, like all of this, uh, this kind of like cultivation of this kind of weirdly radicalized conspiracy kook audience that he's uh, that he's developed versus like the you know his position as a as an MP, and like how do you translate that? audience into uh you know money and influence basically you know after leaving office and to see how christensen kind of attempts to maintain some kind of like influence and standing and also tries to monetize like his position i think is going to be a great bellwether especially for conservative politicians who you know i think the point you're making before about this degrading trust in the office of you know being a member of parliament is is a good one because it's like people like Craig Kelly and, and uh, George Christensen are very obviously just using the office as a stepping stone to some other kind of bigger, different, more amorphous style of power and influence. And I think that, you know, it's generally a lot of people understand and accept that a lot of politicians are in the game only for uh, self-enrichment or for, you know, wanting uh, power for themselves in one form or another. But this is very... Uh, naked, I think. Well, the, I think the... they what they're admitting is that the politician is no longer the most powerful figure in the country, mm. and so previously it it, it was, um, and now so that's what I did. Yeah, so that's what they did, and and now there's these other avenues to be famous and influential that come with a lot less responsibility. Mm. Yeah, t- totally, totally, and and like it's it's also much easier to be a political influencer than it is to be a politician Politician. insofar as you it's easier to be successful because you don't you don't need to pass any legislation all you've got to do is is, (laughs) you know get heaps of engagement and get people talking about things you just got to publish a podcast every week 
Totally, yeah. totally. And well, that's um, more effort and, than George was up for, though. Yeah, that is actually a lot of effort. I, I've, I've been told to say that on this podcast. Um, <laughs> and and also, you'd have to do any of the work of the, the hard yards of being a local member. So, mm. yeah. you know, you don't have to go, you know, appease local groups and, and go to all these events and stuff. You just do whatever you want. Um, so, I think, I, think, I think that is kind of like, it also is like, you know, we're now seeing. The, the, having an audience as a mean, not just like a means to an end, but an end in itself. And it's a mm, cyclical yeah. cycle where you're like, I, you know, I, I grow my audience, I get attention, which I use to then draw more attention to myself, which I then use to u- draw more attention to myself. So it, it is very like, at the end of the day, it's about, you know, people, I think George probably consciously and, and people like Craig Kelly, maybe, you know, subconsciously understand that like, attention is power if you can get people to notice things and care about things you can then get you know that things do happen out of that and also it's good for you and i just want to say that one other thing is like just to draw this rule comparison between george and craig so craig craig is you know well and truly um you know he's, he's promoting all these crank things and, and i really think that you know like i i foi'd i should say sorry freedom of information request so I, I got a bunch of documents from the tga the australian government's medical regulator which showed craig kelly's emails between you know him and australia's top doctors and uh in it he was just saying exactly the stuff he was saying publicly and he would like you know send all these like ridiculous like obscure studies from you know um brazilian doctors and things that he was translating using google translate to try and make the case of these things which he was then also doing in public so you know like at least from that i can kind of get the sense that he's like really believes it by comparison you know um uh, george christensen would go on the podcast of or, or live stream of some like full-on anti-vaxxers, anti-lockdown people called Reignite Democracy Australia. You know, they've been really massive in Victoria um, yeah. during all their lockdowns and, and kind of have become one of the bigger anti-vaxxer, very active groups. He would go on their podcast and he would ex- like very much dog whistle. You know, he would be like, uh, I haven't been able to look into the long-term effects of vaccines, but he wouldn't be drawn on it. And so you can mm, see from right, that that he, right. he's not like, he he's got more is very aware yeah. where the line is. He knows what will get him explicitly into trouble, but he also wants to court the interest and the enthusiasm mm. of conspiracy-minded people because he knows that that's great to have because they engage with heaps of stuff. You know, they probably buy heaps of stuff as well. So you can see from that how he is being like, he's understanding these essentially people who are extremists in some way or the other, having their attention is very beneficial for you. And if Mm. you can have that while also still courting um, traditional conservative uh, you know uh, the uh, the base of, of traditional conservatism you can have quite a big um you know group of people supporting you in what you do mm. and that's yeah i mean that's a, uh, the probably the quickest way to monetizing an audience like that i mean that's how the, in many spheres the QAnon grift worked like it was merch that was really being sold and making a lot of money. And obviously that's a, you know, we're talking about a very big decentralized kind of conspiracy movement there versus one guy, but it does show, I think how, um, well, as you said, that Christensen is being quite conscious about this. Uh, I also think it's interesting. You point out that he knows where the line is in a way that Craig Kelly was never like, never interested in towing the line, very happy to, say exactly what he thought and like piss the rest of the party off. And one of the things that 
Christensen said uh, in his announcement uh, that he was leaving politics was basically about feeling muzzled by the position that he couldn't speak his mind that, uh, you know, he was going to be now that he was free from the commitment of having to get reelected or make people in the party happy that he was going to be able to say what he really thought and then really fucking stick it to him. So there's also, I think, an interesting element there of, uh, you know, broadly speaking, we know that like the internet has been uh, a, an absolute turbocharger for radicalizing people. But the idea that like, you know, you can use the office of MP where you have, you know, certain restrictions, especially if you're part of a, like, you know, major party, one of major two, quite a lot of restrictions of what you can and can't say, use that to build an audience, shirk off the, the shackles of being beholden to the party machine. And now you can say like way more cooked stuff with no repercussions. So I wonder if like he will you know, now be free to go all in on anti-vax stuff if he thinks that that's what's going to like best support his grift yeah Um, i mean my prediction would be probably still no because like 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 i said he is smart and he knows that um he knows that you know if you go full QAnon, if you go full anti-vaxxer you really do hit a limit of people who care about mm -hmm. that stuff and so part of you know there's the idea of free speech and and being muzzled is such a big part of modern conservative politics and and mm. you know like it's very interesting seeing um you know George Christensen had to straddle during uh you know earlier parts of this year both supporting um you know Craig Kelly being like yeah he's standing up for trying to you know, I don't know, tell people about the benefits of horse dewormer or whatever, mm-hmm. but also without having to say the fact that he wasn't being silenced by, you know, the censorious left. He's being silenced by the the conservative government who said, mm-hmm. can you fucking cut it out? So, I mean, I guess like he doesn't have to deal with that anymore, but broadly, I think like being able to say, I'm going to be, you know, unfiltered, I'm going to be uncut, you know, I can mm-hmm. say whatever I want is a very, mm-hmm. is a selling point um, and I think that's actually, a, a, you know, almost like the uh, the the theatre of that is more important than anything that George actually wants to say that he can't right now. Sure. Mm. Um, just before we put a, a pin in this discussion, there was one other funny thing that popped up about him this week, which which is that um, he's trying to get disendorsed by. Uh, by the party so that because uh, if that happens then you can get a payout because if you're like forced to leave parliament against your will uh, you you could get a payout of up to I think it was like a hundred grand was not bad huh yeah but like the problem that George has is that uh, he told everybody that he was voluntarily resigning (laughs) (laughs) so his uh, his uh, his office like his electorate office is now written to um has written to the party basically being like hey could you uh george has asked us to ask you if you could disendorse him so i don't know if that's going to happen but i think um it's a great indicator of just how much he is a grifter in this the grift grift. yeah the grift uh okay well that will probably that's probably enough on george i would say would you would you agree that's enough george for one episode yep yep i've had enough let's call it (laughs) all right all right, excellent. Um, uh, now it's <laughs> one thing I'm conscious of is like uh, you know playing the stings live. 
<laughs> like I haven't had to kind of like listen to them through someone else's ears, you know? So, and like ne- the, towards the end of the show, the stings start to get um more and more embarrassing. Uh, but uh, here's the sting for the business section of the podcast. If you want a podcast, you got to do a lot of shit. It's not technically podcasting. You still got to do that shit. Um, <laughs> So this is where we ask people to uh, like, subscribe, follow, follow us on uh, on Twitter, follow us on Instagram, join the Facebook group, and also follow the uh, Ozpol shit posting, Ozpol snack pod rather on Facebook Facebook page. We have a Patreon, Oz, uh, patreon.com slash Ozpol snack pod. One dollar a month gets you monthly bonus episodes plus other stuff at uh, higher tiers. Our last couple, we just did a deep dive in the uh, where does the history of the phrase responsible economic management come from? And before that, uh, me and Zach read some of the jokes from Gina Reinhardt's alleged joke book. Um, <laughs> so if either of those sound like entertaining ways to spend an hour... Uh, yeah, one of those was a, a really, really uh, dark experience, and the other one is a deep dive into the history of the Liberal Party. So both fun. Uh, while we're in the business section, Cam, do you want to plug, uh, plug anything? Yeah, big time. Uh, look, I don't want to be too much of a shill for my employer, but I, uh, have joined Crikey lately and they are great. They, they're legit. I was, uh, look, I'll, I'll be honest with you guys. I was like apprehensive about what job I was going to take next. And Hmm. I, um, you know, one thing that I don't think Crikey has done a good job in the past is letting everyone know that they've got this like young stable of, sorry, this, this stable of young, great journos, people um, like Kishore, who's just moved down to the, the press gallery, like Amber, like Georgia, like th- there's a lot of, and Chris Woods as well, like there's, there's a lot of good young reporters who are doing good reporting on race, social issues, um, and like uh, LGBTIA um, stuff. So, you know, they are they're doing good stuff they brought me on board to kind of do some internet stuff as well um so i really do recommend them and and hopefully you know part of my role is not just to come in and write for them but it's also to kind of help them do some more interesting stuff with social uh as well because i like to tweet and do that stuff outside of um that um yeah i don't know follow me on twitter i'm doing more twitch stuff i'm i i used to do a lot of radio and now i'm kind of trying to get into live streaming which i like a lot um, and I'm doing other stuff as well. Probably easy easiest to go to my link tree, which is I think uh, linktr.ee slash Cam Wilson. Uh, you can find all my many many platforms uh, there. Cool, excellent. Yeah, I mean we like Cracky. We're signed up. Oh hell yeah! And uh, we recommend it to uh, listener. Um, yeah, a couple of our favorite reporters work there. So uh, big ups. Uh, we also have over the past few weeks been. On, down on our fucking hands and knees begging people to leave us reviews on uh, Apple Podcasts because we haven't got one in months. And, and uh, we introduced that extremely cheesy business sting last week and I think it worked because mm. we got three new reviews this week, which is amazing. I'm going to do one uh, right now. Got... Live on air. Amazing. Uh, uh, um, I like the podcast except for the episode that they had me on. It's usually... Uh, very very good um please listen is that is that is that a good that's amazing. is that, is that that's a amazing. re-endorsement fabulous yeah right we we may need to if we had if we can can we release that as an official cam wilson quote absolutely we, is that absolutely. is that attributable put it, um put on some t-shirts put it on a poster um, tattooed on our foreheads yeah of course <laughs> and beautiful. hey I, I don't think i mentioned at the start 
I've like I like listening. I am I have too many podcasts. So I don't get to listen to every episode, but it is I really do enjoy it, and I like what you guys are doing. It's it's like it's nice to have somewhere that just isn't the same bullshit, you know. Like Oz Ozpol, it's in it's important. It's often interesting for the wrong reasons. Um, I like mm. the approach you guys bring to it. So thanks for what you're doing. Uh, thanks so much, Cam. And uh, like we were so excited when you reached out and were like, when am I getting invited on the show? Because <laughs> we literally have quoted your articles nearly every episode for like months because you just do a bunch of really good reporting on interesting topics so yeah um thanks all all of that same back to you oh and i I should also just say i i get so like i'm essentially a fraud because i get so many story ideas from other people that i just kind of type up myself but like if you do have anything that you think is important that you think people aren't paying attention to I like. I'm always keen to talk about like tips, or even if you just got something like, oh, I think this should get more attention. I, I really do appreciate it. So yeah, there's any way you can reach me, DMs, email, whatever. Amazing, fantastic. Uh, and just before we get out of the business section, and we just want to send a special shout out to those three reviewers from this week. Thank you, Mister Wonton. Thank you, Weston, and also thank you, Sam, with a series of numbers after your name that I'm not going to read out. We really appreciate. Your support. We do normally um, read every review, but maybe we can do them next week. Um, yeah. Uh, we're running a little bit long. Uh, and uh, so now that you've sat through all the business, now it's time for a pub game. And we knew, Cam, that you were a perfect guest for this show <laughs> when it turned out that you also have a reactive dog who causes trouble so please uh give us a pup day what has been happening in your dog's life oh like so i have a french bulldog called rambo and he is great start he he is a very he's small even for a french bulldog he looks like a permanent puppy and he he has behavioral (laughs) issues when he was before we got him he was like severely bullied and kind of like poorly treated so uh very glad to have him but like at night he gets he gets actually like quite aggressive he's actually courted me last night <laughs> anyway but he when we first got him um we we took him to the to the vet the doctor as i like to call them and to, to get him um nice. checked out and they noticed that he's i don't know how to explain this any other way but his spine is not directly over his butthole which like it's kind of like it, it, it's oh, no. off it's like off and it's not like his anus, which is in the wrong place. It's his spine. He's got, he's got spine problems. And, uh. you know, a couple of times through his life, he's actually gone through periods where he like can't use his leg, which is very sad, but he's very, very healthy right uh. now. But the, the, the first time that um, we got him checked out, they realized that this was an issue and they like, the vet literally did this. It, like it was so exaggerated. They like put their hands over his ears as if to stop him from hearing it. And just said, like, I'm I'm sorry, but he's like, he's a very, very slow dog. And we're like, okay. <laughs> and they're like, like, sadly, they're like, we, we've, we very much doubt that he will live past one year old. He is six and a half. So wow. a real yeah, achievement. Rambo. He, um, you know, had, kill had some close calls, but he's healthy and happy. So, um. To Rambo. Much, much like the Rambo franchise, still going strong long <laughs> after that anyone would have expected. Yeah, he, he has the same bloodlust as well. <laughs> yeah, there's almost as many Rambo films as Rambo has years. Yep, which is uh, very impressive. Here's He's to more of both. The, the real thing. Yeah. Oh, sending out lots of love to Rambo. Um, I have a lab Kelpie cross called Dante, who oh. basically. Um, 
he's he's all black and he freaks people out on the street because he's very reactive to other dogs when he's on the leash. But around the house, he's like mostly a sweetie. His main thing is that he is always on the hunt for a snack. And um, he found a new one yesterday, which was when I was writing notes for this very podcast listener. I had uh, a little bowl of shapes as a, you know, some podcasting research fuel, snacking on some shapes. You know, it's flavor you can see. You get flavor on your fingers. And I kind of, it's a bad habit. <laughs> Don't tell anybody. <laughs> um, <laughs> but I, I, I kind of wipe my fingers like on the, uh, the edge of my track pants and just like, you know, they kind of get covered in shapes dust. Anyway, I felt some like tugging at my pocket and looked down and Dante was had snuck into the office and was licking the shapes dust <laughs> off my pants last night, which was a new one. Had him for like three years and um, haven't had that happen before. So <laughs> he's, you know, he's still surprising me every day. Bless you, Dante. <laughs> yeah, Bagel's been doing pretty well. I, I mentioned uh, one of my housemates is moving out. And so we've been looking for new housemates, which, you know, we've, the three of us be living together for like five or six years. So it's a real like trying to find a new member of the family, which is a bit difficult. But we have finally found someone. And um, uh, it's annoying because like we could find the best match in the world. And then Bagel would be like, yes, I will murder this person if they come into the backyard. <laughs> but he, he met this person. It went really well. Um, super chill, like completely ignored them when he first met them, which is like ideal. That's 100%. Um, yeah. Yeah. And then... Um, I live in a little sort of shed slash granny flat kind of thing in the back of the house. And um, they were like, oh, can I come and see our room? And I was like, yeah, yeah, sure. They stood up and like, bagel, totally chill, totally chill. They came within about a meter of my door and he was just like, get the fuck out of my room. Um, So we're going to have to do a little bit more practice about, uh, you know, getting used to having people in this space. Uh, But uh, at least the housemate will be happy in the backyard. If not my room. It takes time to adjust to new housemates. Yeah. For everybody. Yeah. That's all about That's setting boundaries. That's what Bagel's doing. You know, being, it is, it being, is. being clear. Yeah. Very, very loudly setting boundaries. <laughs> yeah. Okie dokie. Uh, well, thank you so much, Cam, for coming on the show. It was really a delight. And um, thank you for all yeah, of the absolutely. work that you do. And um, thank you, listeners, for tuning in. And thank you, Zach, as well. Guys, right. thank you, Noon. Thanks so much. Absolute pleasure, man. We really appreciate it. Um, and thank you everybody for tuning in uh, keep on snacking in the free world we'll catch you next week fuck George Christensen crunch crunch <laughs>